So, Squirrel will say something about it. Yeah, sure. he will. He will. Decidedly Christian, distinctly biblical, and just a little bit nuts. This is Squirrel Chatter. And welcome to the Piney Woods, ladies and gentlemen. I am your Squirrel, the host, coming to you from the ARN studios, high atop the tallest tree in the Piney Woods. And this is Squirrel Chatter, a work in progress. (laughs) Excuse me just a minute. Why is it that the voice is fine until you hit the go on air thing and then all of a sudden you get a frog? Mm. Sip of coffee. We're back to Montana. No, actually, this is the end of my Squirrely Joe's. Um, uh, is this, this isn't the house blend. This is the uh, a little bit nutty blend. It's pretty good. But I just got a shipment yesterday from Montana Coffee Traders, so I will be enjoying that. I guess I'm not a, uh, uh, a, uh, mon coffeeist. <laughs> don't believe you have to just limit yourself to one brand or flavor of coffee. So I'll be switching back to the, the Montana coffee traders, glacier blend and trailblazer blends. I just got uh, both of those in and, uh, Enjoy those as well. But as I said, Squirrel Chatter is a a work in progress. And what I mean by that is, all last year, I knew what I was going to do every day because it was reading the scripture. And I knew reading the scripture took about half an hour, and then I'd have about half an hour for other things. And that worked really well. But this year, we're not reading through the Bible again on the air. Uh, so I, I, I decided I'm going to do this, you know, what I'm calling a study Bible level, uh, Bible study, um, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. And yesterday we started that and I, well, Monday we started it. I did, uh, you know, an introduction to Deuteronomy. We're going through Deuteronomy right now. And then yesterday, had every intention of going through chapter one of Deuteronomy and got about halfway. I think we stopped in verse 18 um, because I tend to ramble. Um, but I got a lot of notes from you. Thank you. Saying that they like the format. They like the the study, that it's, it's helpful. And, and a lot of people are looking forward to it. But I realized that my expectations of time management we're not going to be realistic. And what do I mean by that? I mean that in doing the Bible study, I don't have time to do anything else. And there are other things I want to do. Monday meanderings, Theology Thursdays, Federalist Fridays. So yesterday, after the, after the show, I sat and worked on my um, schedule. So let me give you what the weekly schedule is going to be for Squirrel Chatter. Still a daily podcast, Monday through Friday, webcasting at 7.30 a.m. on Twitter, Twitch, and Facebook. And then the audio podcast drops afterwards, and you can download that wherever you get your podcast. We're 
We're found just about everywhere, and we are a proud member of the Christian Podcast Community. So head on over to christianpodcastcommunity.com. You can find us there. You can find many other, excuse me, great podcasts there. And so I encourage you to do that. Mm. Good coffee. I was sleeping so good when my alarm went off this morning. Did not want to get out of bed. But I did, and here we are. Okay, so here is going to be the weekly schedule for Squirrel Chatter going forward. First, Mondays are going to be Monday Meanderings, where we'll talk about current events, news of the day, whatever comes thoroughly to us. Tuesday and Wednesday is going to be our study Bible level Bible study. And we will continue to work through Deuteronomy, and we will just go at the pace that seems best for the passage. I'm not going to say we're going to get through a chapter a day, or we're going to get through, you know, five verses a day, or what. I said I'm not doing an in-depth, um, you know, sermon-level exegesis, but we are going to be looking at, as I said, a study Bible-level Bible study, and that'll be on Tuesdays and Wednesdays. Thursday is Theology Thursday, and we're going to continue to work our way through the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and today is Theology Thursday, so we will be picking up on the 1689 today. And then Friday is going to be Federalist Friday, where we're going to be talking about the Constitution, the Federalist Papers, the government, how it is meant to function, how the founders intended it, and so that'll be on Fridays. Now, since our primary focus of this podcast is biblical, and since Monday and Friday are not entire episodes devoted to the subject of scripture and theology, on Mondays and on Fridays, we're going to do a short reading from um, one of John MacArthur's devotionals on, and I don't have it, I didn't put it on the desk, I found it yesterday. Um, there's three volumes of them, they're on the life of Christ, and I can't remember the title, um, but they're daily readings in the life of Christ, something like that. And of course, we won't be doing it every day, <laughs> so we won't uh, go through it in a year like the devotional is set up with 365 daily readings. We're only going to be doing two a week, but we will do them sequentially, and that'll be on Mondays and Fridays to give us, you know, a, a bit of injection of, of theology and, and uh, scripture to take us through the week. So that'll be Mondays and Fridays. We'll do, we'll, Mondays will be Monday Meandering, Friday will be Federalist Friday, but we're going to have a devotional reading on those days. And so, therefore, I have changed our tagline. I've been saying that Squirrel Chatter was a podcast dedicated primarily to the public reading of Scripture and secondarily to my thoughts on various topics of the day. I've changed that. Now, Squirrel Chatter is a podcast dedicated to Scripture, history, current events, and whatever else I want to talk about. <laughs> so that's how we're going to tag the podcast. 
And as I said, we webcast at 7.30 a.m. Mountain on Twitter, Facebook, and Twitch. And you can find us wherever fine podcasts are found. Um, so it is Theology Thursday. We are going through the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith. We're doing it paragraph by paragraph. And we have not had a Theology Thursday since November 10th of last year. Um, I was sick, then it was Advent and Christmas, then I took two weeks off, you know, life. So it's been two months since we've looked at the 1689. Now on November 10th, we looked at chapter 8, paragraph 8 of the 1689. And I don't want to just jump back in with paragraph 9. Um, so we're going to do a little review first. Also, today's Rush Limbaugh's birthday. He would have been 72 today had he not died of lung cancer in 2021. And yes, from noon to 3 Eastern every day, I still miss listening to the Rush Limbaugh show. And I won't say frequently, but from time to time, I do go to RushLimbaugh.com and find an old episode and stick it up just to have it play in the background. Um, I do miss Rush Limbaugh. Uh, I, I, as, whenever I think of the politics and what's going on in current events, I mean, wouldn't you have loved to have listened to Rush last week during the, the fight for the the House Speakership. Wouldn't those have been just fantastic episodes? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I miss his uh, humor, I miss his insight, and I miss, miss the Rush Limbaugh show daily. So I will be thinking of him today, noon to three Eastern, always either at the second or third hour, at the top of the hour. The bow and dawn and the, the staff from the other side of the glass would interrupt him and enter into the studio with a birthday cupcake and, and sing happy birthday. And that was always, always a fun treat on his birthdays. The, the two days that the staff would interrupt him like that were his birthday, which is today and, um, August 1st or the first show of August which was the anniversary of the start of the show. And so they would always celebrate the anniversary of the show, and they would always celebrate Rush's birthday. And so today is Rush's birthday, and I didn't want to let that pass without mentioning it. All right. Let us begin, as is our practice, with the prayer of confession from the 1552 Book of Common Prayer. Almighty and most merciful Father, we have erred and strayed from thy ways like lost sheep, we have followed too much the devices and desires of our own hearts. We have offended against thy holy laws. We have left undone those things which we ought to have done, and we have done those things which we ought not to have done, and there is no health in us. But thou, O Lord, have mercy upon us miserable offenders. Spare thou them, O God, which confess their faults. Restore thou them that are penitent, according to thy promises declared unto mankind in Christ Jesus our Lord. And grant, O most merciful Father, for his sake, that we may hereafter live a godly, righteous, and sober life to the glory of thy holy name. Amen. 
And now our prayer for the reading of the word. Blessed Lord, who hast caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may in such wise hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and comfort of thy holy word we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which thou hast given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. All right. Well, we are in the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, and we are looking at chapter 8 of Christ the Mediator. And so what we're going to do is we're going to review the first eight paragraphs and then fire up paragraph 9 today. Excuse me. I don't know why my nose is running. I thought I had, I do have. It was underneath the DVD I watched last night before bedtime. Pardon me while I wipe my nose. Don't know why it's running, but it started running when I woke up this morning. So maybe I'm coming down with something. I hope not. I don't want to come down with something. If I do come down with something, I blame the children. Because I spent all day Tuesday with the, the high school kids doing the uh, Business Professionals of America regional competition. All right. So we are looking at Of Christ the Mediator, and we'll look at the first eight paragraphs, and then we will look at paragraph nine, which is the paragraph for today. We won't be doing this review like this every week, but I thought to get us back on track, we ought to. And so this way we will read through the entire chapter up to paragraph nine and talk a little bit about what it says. So we're back on the same page before we move forward. Paragraph 1 says, It pleased God in his eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, his only begotten Son, according to the covenant made between them both, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, head and savior of the church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. Now, as I said when we started going through here, the, the, the covenant of redemption, which is the covenant made between the Father and the Son, according to paragraph 1, is nowhere mentioned in the Scriptures. Um, it is what they call a theological covenant. It is a, a structure of covenant theology and it, I do not believe it to be quite accurate. Um, I'm not a covenant theologian. Um, I say that because next week I start taking Dr. Jeff Johnson's class on covenant theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary, and I'm looking forward to that. No, and I'm not taking it to argue or cause problems in the class, but I just, I'm not a covenant theologian, and if you just take that reference to covenant out of there, it doesn't change the meaning of the uh, um, the paragraph. And here's my thought on the matter, just to, to offer a little bit of clarity. We can argue, and I think there are valid arguments on both sides, that there is one divine will shared by the three persons of the Trinity or that there is each member of the Trinity has their own will. Now, I, I, it, it's one of those inscrutable things that we don't understand. 
You know, Christ repeatedly says, I did not come to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Um, and so some people say, well, that's his, his human will versus his divine will. That the divine will is the same will as the will of the Father, and it sent the Son. But his human will, he didn't come to do his human will, but he came to do the will of the Father who sent him. And I think that kind of tortures the language a little bit. So there's some, you know, is will a product of nature where there's one divine nature, therefore there is one divine will? Or is will the product of person that each person of the Trinity being a person has a distinct will? And so that's a, a matter of debate. And honestly, it's not something we're going to settle this side of heaven. And my thought is, either way, whether we have a single divine will or whether we have a triune divine will, the divine will is perfect. And so if we do have three divine wills, just as we have three persons in the Trinity, those three divine wills are perfectly united and therefore, they never need to reach an agreement. Do you understand what I'm saying? They're perfectly united. So there was no need for the Father and the Son to sit down in eternity and past with the Holy Spirit and work out the plan of salvation. Um, the plan of salvation was always in the mind of God. And in that, I mean the mind of all three persons of the Trinity because there's only one God. So it's, it's like I said, it's, we're, we're splitting hairs here when we start talking about the numbers of divine wills and stuff. But in any case, there had to be no agreement between the Father and Son because they were in perfect agreement. So they did not make a covenant. You know, you can have unity and agreement without making a covenant. There was, there was no need to make a covenant. Covenants are, in a sense, not, not an absolute, but in a sense, like contracts. And the only reason you put something in writing is because one or both parties doesn't fully trust the other. Um... And mankind, you know, so God makes covenants with men because man is untrustworthy. And because of man's untrustworthy nature, man has a tendency not to trust God, even though he is fully worthy of our trust. And so God makes covenants with man. God does not need to make covenants with God. You know, so that's just my thought on the eternal covenant of redemption. It's a theological construct. I don't believe it's entirely valid. Um, not that the ideas surrounding it are, you know, hugely in error, but there's just, I, I, I don't quite latch onto it. Okay. So according to the covenant made between them both to be mediator between God and man. Prophet, the, God is the, uh, Christ is a 
the mediator between God and man. He stands in the middle. He, a mediator is someone who reconciles two disputing parties. This is why, you know, mediation is often a, a, uh, a step to take before going to court where the two parties in dispute sit down with someone to try to work out their differences. So a mediator is someone who comes between disputing parties. And he is the mediator between God and man because of man's sinfulness. Man is fully in rebellion against God. Christ comes between God and man to bring peace between these parts. He does this by fulfilling the roles of prophet, priest, and king. As a prophet, he perfectly represents God to men. He is the exact representation of the Father. He, he, what he said is the, are the words of God. What he did are the actions of God. He is God. And so, as a prophet, he perfectly represented God to man. As a priest, he perfectly represents, and I should say the priest, because he is the final and perfect priest. As the priest, he perfectly represents man before God, and as the priest, he offers the perfect sacrifice, which reconciles man to God. And then as the king, he is the supreme sovereign over all creation. And, and so he and he is the head and savior of the church. He's the head of the church, which means he is the the governing body of the church is the Lord Jesus Christ. Um, the The church is not a democracy. <laughs> um, the church is a monarchy, and the leadership of the church, which is the elders of the church, according to Scripture, the elders of the church are stewards of the church of Jesus Christ. They are not over the church. They are not the head of the church. There is only one head of the church. It is Jesus Christ. It's not popes. It's not bishops. It's not church elders. It's certainly not the committee on committees about committees, which some churches have. <laughs> Um, you got 23 members and every one of them, and then 27 committees, you know. <laughs> um, I've been in churches like that, so I know. So Christ is the head of the church, and he is the only head of the church. And the duty of the church, and, and there is some hierarchy in the church. You do have elders. You do have you know, a, a hierarchy in the church that is scriptural, elders, deacons, members. Those, that hierarchy is set up by the Lord and it's delegated authority, but he is the head of the church. And we who are members of the church, our duty is to obey him, not to have our own agenda but to work for his agenda. And he is the savior of the church. This refers to his, both his perfect life, the, the, the active obedience of Christ, in which he actively fulfilled the law, 
and his sacrificial death on the cross. So he had the perfect life of obedience, and then he died in our place. And it is both of those that secure salvation for the church. I'm sorry, I woke up with a, with a frog. I didn't have it earlier. We'll see what my voice is tomorrow, and then we'll just have the weekend to recover. So he is the head and savior of the church. He is the heir of all things in that he will receive all of the earth, all of heaven, everything will belong to him. And he is the judge of the world. And as the judge of the world, it is he who will pass judgment on sinful mankind at the end of the age. And that is a sobering thought for all of us. It should be. It's a sobering thought for the Christian because we need to understand, A, what we've been saved from. Um, one of the things we don't think about enough is the fact, you know, what, what did we save or we were saved from our sin? Yes, but what were we saved from? We were saved from the wrath of God, the eternal wrath of God. And that is sobering. So that is a sobering thought, that Christ is the judge of the world is a sobering thought for the Christian. It's also a sobering thought for the non-Christian because they have not been saved from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God will be poured out upon sinful humanity um, for rebelling against the one true and living God, the, the thrice holy God of creation. And so the fact that Christ is the judge of the world is a sobering thought for all concerned. Okay, that's paragraph one. Paragraph two, the Son of God, the second person in the Holy Trinity, being very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory, of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made, did, when the fullness of time was complete, take upon him man's nature, with all the essential properties and common infirmities of it, yet without sin, being conceived by the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary, the Holy Spirit coming down upon her, and the power of the Most High overshadowing her, and so was made of a woman, of the tribe of Judah, of the seed of Abraham and David, according to the scriptures, so that two whole, perfect, and distinct natures were inseparably joined together in one person, without conversion, composition, or confusion, which person is very God and very man, yet one Christ, the only mediator between God and man. God is triune. God is trinity. We have one God eternally existing in three co-equal persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is a truth of Scripture which needs to be anchored firmly in the thoughts of every Christian. Now, we're not going to grasp that. We don't understand that because, you know, my brain wouldn't, would barely, you know, wouldn't fill up a gallon bucket. Neither would yours. We're not 
the brightest bulbs of creation. We are finite creatures with finite minds, and we are incapable of grasping most of the truths of God. We can understand much, and we should strive to understand much, and we should grow in our knowledge and understanding constantly, but we're never going to understand it all. And this is one of those things that is mind-boggling when you really get down to it. The fact that God is Trinity. God is triune. Jesus is God. He is the second person of the Trinity. He is fully God. He has always been God. He is the very and eternal God, the brightness of the Father's glory of one substance and equal with him who made the world, who upholds and governs all things he has made. This is our Lord Jesus Christ. He is God. Holy, fully, completely God. But when the time was right, according to the plan of God, God the Son took on human nature. The eternal God became man. And in becoming man, he, he took on all the essential properties and common infirmities of man. Jesus slept, which means he physically got tired. God doesn't get tired. Yet in his humanity, Jesus got tired. In his humanity, Jesus got hungry. Jesus took on all the infirmities of man. He aged. He grew, you know. Um, but he did all of this without sin. This is, this is to say that he was impeccable. Now, impeccability, you know, it, it means without flaw. But when, when, when viewed as an attribute of divinity, it means incapable of sinning. We, we say the Father cannot sin. We must also understand the Son cannot sin. Um, there is, you know, and I've, I've heard people say, well, if he couldn't have sinned, the fact that he didn't sin makes his perfect life less impressive. And I think that's ridiculous. Um, it, it really isn't, but he couldn't have sinned when he was on earth. He, he is impeccable. He is God, but he took on man's human nature, but he did not have the inherited sin nature of Adam. He was the second Adam, meaning he was without sin, just as Adam was before Genesis three. And so he did not have the sin nature. He took on human nature. He did not take on the sinful nature of man since the fall. So this is something we need to remember. Our sinfulness was not part of God's creation of humanity. Our sinfulness was not part of God's creation of humanity. Mankind was created 
without sin. So Adam was not struggling against a sin nature such as you or I are when he disobeyed God in the garden, um, which, which actually makes his fall, you know, well, we'll just leave that there. Okay, Christ was without sin. And he did not receive the sin nature because he had no human father. The Holy Spirit came upon Mary while she was yet a virgin and Christ was conceived. And so he did not receive that sin of Adam. It was not passed down to him. This, this goes back to the... the the, the whole thing in the uh, back in in uh, um, Genesis three when when God very specifically and 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 this is something to remember the first mention of a coming savior was made to Satan it was God pronouncing his judgment upon Satan when he said he would put enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. And that the serpent would crush his heel, but the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent. The seed of the woman is undoubtedly a reference to the virgin birth and a reference to the fact that the Messiah would not have a human father. And so in Christ, the two whole, perfect, distinct natures God and man are inseparably joined in the one person of Jesus Christ. Christ became human. He's always been God, and he became human when he, in the incarnation. He did not cease to be human at the ascension. Those natures the, the divine and human nature in Christ were joined together inseparably. And he, they're, they're, what, how is it phrased? Um, without conversion, composition, or confusion. These natures are fully unified perfectly but they're not confused. They still remain distinct. He's not a composite being. Um, the, the divine didn't become human. The human didn't become divine. There was no, confu the, no conversion there. There was composition, no composition there. He's not, like I said, he's not a, com a composite being. And there's no confusion. His natures remain distinct, perfectly unified, yet distinct. Another one of those mysteries that we're going to have a hard time grasping. All right, paragraph three. The Lord Jesus, in his human nature, thus united to the divine, in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure, having in him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge, 
in whom it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell, to the end that being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth, he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety, which office he took upon himself, which he, which he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father, who also put all power and judgment in his hand and gave him commandment to execute the same. In his human nature, Christ was indwelt and empowered by the Holy Spirit. And again, he was impeccable. He was without flaw. He was not able to sin. This is a divine attribute. And he became the mediator, you know, having all in him all treasure and knowledge and everything. He became the mediator who is the one who reconciles disputing parties. And he became the surety. Now, what is a surety? This is not a, unless you're a, um, really into finances, <laughs> um, the word surety is probably not something that you come across very often. And a sh surety in this sense, um, a surety in its general sense is a guarantee. And so let's say I'm going to go buy a car. And I go and I'm going to borrow the money for the car, but I have to make a down payment. That down payment is the surety, the guarantee. It's the money I put down that I'm going to buy the car and I'm going to make the monthly payments. It's a guarantee. It's, it's a, what's the, the phrase, you know, he's got skin in the game. <laughs> you know, if, if I don't make the monthly payments, not only do I not get the car, I will lose the money I've already paid. So it's a surety, it's a guarantee, it's, it's, it's a, a, an incentive to keep going. Um, sometimes there's, you, you put down a deposit, a non-refundable deposit to, to buy something. And if you decide later not to buy it, you don't get the deposit back. That deposit was a surety. Um, well, in this context, the surety is not a thing, it's a person. And in this context, a surety is one who has become legally liable for the debt, default, or failure in duty of another. That's Webster's definition. So what this means is, as our surety, the Lord Jesus Christ became legally liable for our sin debt, the def our default in failure to obey God, our failure in the duty to worship God, he became the surety for our sinfulness, meaning he became legally liable for my sin. That's why he died on the cross. He was paying the penalty that I owed, the penalty that you owed, if indeed you know Jesus Christ. So as a surety, he was the 
the payment for our sin, and he was the judge. And these, this office was given to him by the Father. And again, we're, we're talking about different, you know, aspects of divine will, and, and I really don't want to get into that because it's something that's not settled. <laughs> Trust me, it's not settled. So, paragraph four. This office, the office of mediator and surety, the Lord Jesus did most willingly undertake, which that he might discharge, he was made under the law and did perfectly fulfill it and underwent the punishment due to us, which we should have borne and suffered, being made sin and a curse for us, enduring the most grievous sorrows in his soul and most painful sufferings in his body, was crucified and died and remained in the state of the dead, yet saw no corruption. On the third day he arose from the dead with the same body in which he suffered, with which he also ascended into heaven, and there sits at the right hand of his father, making intercession, and shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. So we see here that Jesus, in order to undertake the office of mediator, prophet, priest, and king, mediator, and surety, he was made under the law. When he took on humanity, he became subject to the divine law. As such, he was responsible to obey it, which he did on our behalf. And then he went to under, undergo the punishment that was due us so that we could stand before God. And the thing is, and we've talked about this before, we have this great exchange, this double imputation. When the sinner comes to Christ in faith and repentance and is saved, he finds that his sin was nailed to the cross with Christ and paid for. Paid in full. Nothing left owing. The debt has been satisfied. And at the same time, the sinner receives in the place of his sin Christ's perfect righteousness. The perfectly obedient life that Christ lived is then credited to the repentant sinner so that we are made perfectly righteous. That is amazing grace. And here it talks about the, the, the pain that he suffered on the cross, the crucifixion, the penalty that was paid for our sin. He died fully dead. He was buried. And he rose again on the third day in the same body in which he suffered. Um, this is the picture of the, ref of the resurrection that all believers, and actually all humans, will receive. We will be born in a body suitable for eternity. 
whether it's an eternity of joy with God in heaven or an eternity of wrath as we suffer the punishment for our sin in hell, every human will have an everlasting body, which means the suffering in hell is permanent. It is eternal. So he suffered on the cross. He saw no corruption. He was raised on the third day in the same body in which he suffered. The same body ascended into heaven. And there he sits at the right hand of his father, making intercession. He is currently, right now, interceding for all who are his. We have a great high priest who defends us in the courtroom of God perfectly. The, this ministry of intercession, this, Christ has prayed for you. Christ has interceded for you much longer than he suffered on the cross. And if you're over the age of, you know, if you're much over the age of 30, because we don't know the exact age at which he died, if you're much over the age of 30, he was in his 30s, probably his early 30s, if you are much older than 30, then he has prayed for you longer than he lived on the earth. Just think about that. But he lives now. He sits at the right hand of his father, making intercession for those who are his. And he shall return to judge men and angels at the end of the world. Judgment day is coming. And this is something that is a motivation for obedience. It should be a motivation for faith and repentance. You know, the, the, the people should desire to flee from the wrath that is to come. And the only way to flee from the wrath that is to come is to flee to Christ. Because he will return to judge the men and angels at the end of the world. In paragraph 5, Lord Jesus, by his perfect obedience and sacrifice of himself, which he through the eternal spirit once offered up to God, has fully satisfied the justice of God, procured reconciliation, and purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. Perfectly fulfilled, perfectly purchased, procured reconciliation, satisfied the justice of God, purchased an everlasting inheritance in the kingdom of heaven for all those whom the Father has given unto him. Of those whom the Father has given me, I will lose none, but I will raise him up on the last day, John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is very, very important. A, a, a full and true understanding of the doctrine of salvation includes divine election. And it must be understood. 
And, and I would just point you to John chapter 6. Paragraph 6. Although the price of redemption was not actually paid by Christ until after his incarnation, yet the virtue, efficacy, and benefit thereof were communicated to the elect in all ages, successively from the beginning of the world, in and by those promises, types, and sacrifices wherein he was revealed and signified to be the seed which should bruise the serpent's head and the lamb slain from the foundation of the world being the same yesterday and today and forever. There has only ever been one way of salvation. And that way of salvation is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, those who were saved, and it's, it's always been salvation by grace through faith. It's by grace because none of us deserve it. It's by faith because it is received by believing God, believing God's promises. In the Old Testament, those who were saved were saved because they believed in the promise of a Savior to come. They believed that God would do as he had promised and achieve their salvation. He hadn't done it yet, but they were looking forward to it. In the New Testament, since the cross... We who are saved are saved by believing in the sufficiency of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of our sins and the promises that are made to all who will come to him by faith. So it is by faith that we believe the promises Old Testament, New Testament, we are all saved in exactly the same way. So, while the, the price for our sin was not paid until the cross, all those who were saved before the cross are still saved by the cross. There is only one way of salvation. Paragraph 7. Christ, in the work of mediation, acts according to both natures, by each nature doing that which is proper to itself. Yet, by reason of the unity of the person, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in Scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. When we read the New Testament in the Gospels, we will see, you know, that Jesus did this and Jesus did that. And sometimes it is an act that is clearly of his divine nature, yet it's attributed to the man, Christ Jesus. Sometimes it's an act of humanity that's contributed to the divinity of Christ Jesus. This is not because of some sort of sloppiness on the part of the gospel writers, because we believe in the, the verbal, plenary, inerrant inspiration of scripture every word is inspired so this is not an this is not an imprecision on 
the part of the writers of the gospel. These are the words of God. But what, what it is, is it is proper because of the reason of the unity of the divine and human natures to attribute actions to both. Now, there's no confusion between the natures. We've already seen that. But they are in perfect union. So much so that the person of Jesus Christ acts in his divinity and acts in his humanity simultaneously and, you know, without dis distinction. Um, I, I'm, I'm phrasing it wrong. <laughs> I did not write out what, what, uh, how I was going to say this, but I think it's sometimes, I think it's, it's, it's clear that, you know, as it says, it's proper to one nature, what, that which is proper to one nature is sometimes in scripture attributed to the person denominated by the other nature. It's just don't get hung up on the fact that, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's one thing to study, you know, was this an act of humanity or an act of divinity in the life of Christ? It's another thing entirely to try to make something of the fact that, you know, a divine act is attributed to the man Christ. So it's just, don't get hung up on those things. But it's, it's due to the perfect unity of the two natures that it is proper to sometimes say things in that way. Paragraph 8, and this is where we were on November 10th. To all those for whom Christ has obtained eternal, eternal redemption, he does certainly and effectually apply and communicate the same making intercession for them, uniting them to himself by his spirit, revealing to them in and by his word the mystery of salvation, persuading them to believe and obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit, and overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such a manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable dispensation, and all of free and absolute grace without any condition foreseen in them to procure it. This is the, the act of Christ in the believer. So to everyone for whom Christ has obtained eternal redemption. I, I want to stop right there because on the cross... The Lord Jesus Christ perfectly saved a known group of people. He did not make salvation possible for any person who chose to avail himself of it. He perfectly saved on the cross those whom he intended to save. So he obtained eternal redemption for those whom the Father gave him, going back to what we read a couple paragraphs before. And for those people, he does certainly and effectually, so certainly, there's no denying it, and effectually, it, 
It achieves its purposes. Always. Apply and communicate that eternal redemption to those whom he saved. He makes intercession for them. We've talked about that. He unites them to himself by his spirit. We are united with Christ. And that is, that is an, again, one of these mysteries that, you know, he says that I want them to be in me the way I'm in you. He says to the Father, the Father and the Son are inseparably united in perfect union. And so those who, for whom Christ died are inseparably united to Christ in perfect union. Now, we will obviously not fully experience that in this life because we need to be freed from the very presence of sin. We have been freed, to, to quote from J.C. Ryle, we have been freed from the penalty of sin. We are being freed from the power of sin. And we will be freed from the presence of sin. And so we look forward to that. But we are even now perfectly and inseparably united to Christ Jesus. And he makes intercession for them, he unites them. He reveals to them in and by his word, how does God talk to us? In the scriptures. He reveals to us, those whom he saves, in and by his word, the mystery of salvation. Um, remember, mystery in scripture is referring to a divine truth previously undisclosed to mankind. So the mystery of salvation, and, and this, I think, what we need to understand, how does this work? Why is salvation a mystery? In the Old Testament, salvation had been promised. But how salvation was to be achieved had been hinted at. I mean, read Psalm 22 and Isaiah 53. It's hinted at, um, sometimes quite strongly, but it wasn't explicitly laid out until the New Testament. So the Old Testament saints understood that God had promised them salvation. They did not, it had not been revealed how that salvation was going to be accomplished. That has now been revealed at the cross. So he makes known to us the mystery of salvation so that we can look at the cross and understand what was accomplished there and why it's important to us. It is the Spirit of God that persuades us to believe and obey. The elect were elect from before the foundation of the world. Before God said, let there be light, there was already in existence a perfect and complete list of all whom Christ would save from creation to eternity. It's a distinct and complete list. But there are unsaved elect people. Because we were chosen 
in eternity past. We were chosen for eternally, in eternity future, and all of the elect will be present with Christ in eternity future. Yet, each of us come to that salvation at a point in time. This is why Paul can say that before you came to Christ, before God made you alive with Christ, you were a children of wrath, as are the rest. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. So the, the, the person who is saved, who, who, who Christ died for, whom it has been known from eternity past would be saved, comes to salvation at a point in time. There is a point in time in the life of the elect when God the Holy Spirit convicts that person of sin, makes them alive, and brings them to faith. It happens at a point in time. And that's what's being, it's, it, this is um, persuading them to believe. That is the act of the salvation. It's persuading, this is not, um, this is stronger than just, you know, making an argument and trying to get somebody to change their mind. This is a, 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 an irresistible persuasion. <laughs> This is a person, you know, this is an offer you can't refuse. If you are of the elect, you will come to faith. And it's not something that you can refuse. It's going to happen. And so that is that. And he persuades them to obey, governing their hearts by his word and spirit. So there is in the heart and spirit of the redeemed a desire to obey God. Now, this is not a desire that is perfectly achieved in the believer this side of death because we still struggle with the sin nature of our flesh. Um, as, as Paul said, you know, that which I want to do, I don't do, and that which I do is what I don't want to do. Uh, Romans chapter 7, a, a chapter that every believer should study in depth to understand the struggle that we, though redeemed, the, we, though desiring to obey Christ, still struggle with. So he does this by persuading us and governing our, heart, our, our hearts by his word and spirit. So, I mean, by his word. This is, I was reading uh, a tweet uh, by my friend Dale Partridge yesterday, and he made a good point. He said, it's not the years you've followed Christ, it's the hours. And that a new believer who devotes himself to spending an hour a day in the Word will soon surpass in Christian maturity the older believer who spends little time in the world, in the word. And it's like, it was an interesting thing because I think we've all seen, you know, older saints who, you know, 
as as Paul said of of uh, was it the Corinthians that though you ought to be teachers, you're still having to be taught. Um, that you know, having been Christian for a while, you should be much further along. I think we've all known saints like that because they're saved, but they haven't really grown much since their salvation. And at the same time, I think we all know Christians who have not been saved for a long time, but who just devour Christian teaching and rapidly advance in their knowledge and in their godliness and in their sanctification. And, and so, you know, spending time in his word is important. And the spirit is the one who guides us in our study of the word. And overcoming all their enemies by his almighty power and wisdom in such manner and ways as are most consonant to his wonderful and unsearchable disposition. So he is going to achieve his purposes by his wisdom in his way. And everything he does is perfectly constant with his divine nature and his perfection. So we, 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 we do not get to question the goodness of God. We, we see things that happen. We don't always understand why they happen. We don't understand why we're going through what we're going through or why someone we love is going through what, what they're going through or why a nation is going through what it's going through. But we must understand that this is always advancing the cause of Christ in ways that we cannot fathom, but it's his unsearchable and wonderful dispensation, his power and wisdom in, in action. And all of this is done of free and absolute grace. There is no way that we deserve it. There's no way that we earned it. Everything that God does for us is done without any condition foreseen in us. Um, it's unconditional grace. God chose to set his grace upon his elect. And it's not because we were so wonderful. Because we're not. And so for that, we give him all praise and glory and honor. And that brings us to paragraph nine. It's a short one. And we will be all caught up when we're done here. We'll be in paragraph 10 next week without the hour-long uh, review. But I wanted to do this to get us all back on the page because it's been two months since we talked about these things. Paragraph nine. The office of mediator between God and man is proper only to Christ who is the prophet, priest, and king of the church of God, and may not be either in whole or any part thereof transferred from him to any other. This is directly written to our Roman Catholic friends and neighbors. There is only one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. There is only one redeemer, Christ Jesus. There is only one who intercedes for us with God, 
Christ Jesus. This cannot apply to Mary. This cannot apply to any saint recognized by some earthly body. Um, Patron saints of this and that don't hear your prayers, and they can do nothing about them if they did. Mary doesn't hear your prayers and could do nothing about them if she did. She is not divine. The saints are not divine. The only divine is God. And the only mediator between God and man is the fully divine and fully human man, Christ Jesus. The office of mediator cannot be transferred. It is not shared. There is no co-redemptrix. Quite frankly, the, the catechism of the Catholic Church is a heretical document does not mean that everything in it is false. There's quite a bit in it that's true. But it doesn't take much poison to make an otherwise wholesome meal deadly. And so it is the heretical elements of the Catechism of the Catholic Church that poisons the whole of it. And part of that is this idea of the treasury of merit, of purgatory, and of Mary and the saints and and praying to saints and all of that. There's only one mediator, Jesus Christ. If you are looking anywhere else for salvation, you're looking in the wrong place. Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given unto men by which we must be saved. It is Jesus Christ or nothing. He is the Savior of the world. He is the only Savior of the world. Apart from him, there is no salvation found. The, the proof text given for this paragraph is 1 Timothy 2.5, which I've paraphrased. Let me now let me quote it. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Period. End of sentence. There is only one mediator. All right, folks. Let us end with the Apostles' Creed, which you will hear an echo of much of what we read. Then we will pray the collect for grace and close the show. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now the collect for grace. O Lord, our Heavenly Father, almighty and everlasting God, who has safely brought us to the beginning of this day, defend us in the same with thy mighty power, and grant that this day we fall into no sin, neither run into any kind of danger, but that all our doings may be ordered by thy governance to do always that is righteous in thy sight. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. 
All right, folks, that's Squirrel Chatter for today. I hope you have the best of Thursdays. Remember to do the things you ought to do. Don't do the things you ought not do. And whatever you do, do it for the glory of the Lord. We'll see you again here tomorrow for another episode of Squirrel Chatter. Take care. God bless. Squirrel Chatter is recorded in front of a live studio hamster.